As you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, picking up where we left off last time. Paul continues to make his case to the Galatian churches as they drift from the true gospel following the false teachers. Paul continues his argument in Galatians 4 and verses 12 through 20. Galatians 4.12 Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Members of your family, friends you know, neighbors you have, many of the people you love and care for are caught. They're tied up on the inside. Uh, They find themselves in a kind of bondage to the ever-discouraging carousel, rat race, the wheel, the hamster wheel of trying to make themselves feel all right, be okay with themselves and with their families and friends and uh, the world, finding a place to fit and to be right or righteous. Or perhaps uh, they don't so much have a sense of a bondage to that rat race of life as they are perhaps lost altogether and have a sense of meaninglessness and directionlessness if they are, after all, but an accident of time plus chance plus matter. What is another mistake of its disappearance? There is a kind of groping for meaning for any kind of thing that feels real, that touches my soul if I believe in a soul. I feel lost. Or perhaps if it's not bondage or lostness, we might say there's a general insecurity, a fear about uh, where they stand uh, with God, perhaps, or with their family or their friends. There's always a kind of sense of general anxiety and nervousness in life. Paul speaks to a Galatian church in Galatians chapter 4, suffering from all these things too. Uh, The Bible calls out to these, our neighbors, friends, perhaps you this evening, to the captive under in bondage under the law, to 
the, the, the one who's lost and without general focus in life, uh, to the one who walks on eggshells. See, there is a, a gospel call Paul is giving again and again to freedom from bondage, to focus in life, to a kind of fearlessness that only the gospel can give. Very simply in our passage this evening, Paul gives first his entreaty in verse 12a, his entreaty, and then what flows from that are the reasons for why they ought to follow his entreaty. So that'll be our general outline. First, we'll talk about what Paul is entreating them unto, what he's asking of them, and then the reasons he gives for his entreaty. This is so that we too might be not fearful but fearless, not in bondage to the law, not lost, but free and focused and full in Christ, as Paul's desire is for the Galatians also. So let's start looking at Paul's entreaty there in verse 12a. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Now this this entreaty, of course, comes within a larger flow of Paul's argument throughout the letter, and it's a slightly different appeal than the ones he's made first. If you remember back to chapter 1, he started with his case you know, against the false teachers and for the gospel of justification by faith alone by arguing in some ways his own resume, the legitimacy of his preaching and of his gospel. Chapter 2, he tells the story of going to the apostles in Jerusalem, laying it out and them affirming it's an apostolic gospel. As he moves on to chapter 2, he begins to make more of a, a theological and practical case. And then chapter 3, where we spent the last few times together, Paul shows that this gospel of justification by faith alone is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Abraham, who was justified by faith alone. And this, this era of the patriarchs is not some kind of, you know, that was by grace, but then Moses comes with the law, and now it's by law. No, these fit together perfectly without contradiction or annulment. There's a, a continuity through the whole of the Old Testament. And then as we come to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul begins to tease out the very practical applications of this gospel of justification by faith alone, arguing that it is the very movement from slave to son. As we come to chapter 4 and verse 12, it's as if he has another card to play. He has uh, the personal argument. He has a personal relationship with these people. He was their first pastor. They came to know Christ and believed in Him you know, under His ministry. And he's going to play and press in that personal relationship, which we know to be, of course, one of the most persuasive arguments that anyone can give. Remember when. That's what Paul begins to do. Uh, perhaps you know the argument well. Um, the force of the personal argument Perhaps the famous words of, but can't you do it for your mother? You know, it's the kind of thing Paul's doing here. So it is here. The Bible is not, you might say, too spiritual in some way for a, a kind of a guilt trip, an appeal to personal loyalty or friendship. Because as Paul has set out, uh, the stakes are not just high, but in fact eternal. 
And so his pleading here is, is personal, it's sharp, second person, he's seeking to hit them between the eyes so they can't miss it. Speaking in plain speech, I wish you'd become as I am. Now, it is somewhat surprising as you come to verse 12a and he's entreating, or another, I think, more helpful translation would be, he's begging them, shamelessly begging them. Paul, uh, we might say, think of it as a, as a man standing on a train track, stopping the church of Galatia, the train that is indeed heading for the cliff it can't see. It is running off the rails. They don't know where they're going. And Paul is laying himself down on the track, seeking to stop them. His entreaty, his, his begging is surprising in the sense that you might assume, of course, that he would go right to the main point. He would say, I wish that you were as Christ is. Of course, he, he gets there in verse 19, and we will come to that. But he starts here making this personal appeal saying, I wish you were as I am. Now, of course, he's not like Gaston in The Beauty of the Beast singing how great he is and the five dozen eggs that he eats every morning. No, he is speaking in such a way, as we'll see, that it's not so much about him and his greatness, but about what's happened in his life, the reality of which they know firsthand. They know exactly of which is speaking. This is a, an argument Paul has used elsewhere. Genesis, or not Genesis, Acts 26. I'm sure Terry will come to it in the coming weeks. As Paul, under lock and chain, bruised and battered and beaten, stands before King Agrippa and Queen Bernice, and says these famous words, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am except these chains. See, Paul knows what King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, sitting on the throne despite having all that they could ever want in their physical bodies. And Paul also knows the Galatians how they think that they've found a, a new way and going back to the old Judaizing way of keeping the ceremonial law and denying the gospel faith. Perhaps Paul also knows how all of you, though you are part of the most wealthy, technologically advanced civilization in the history of the world, he knows you suffer. You suffer under the bondage to the law. That's the point he's been making as we come up to chapter 4 and verse 12. That you suffer under the bondage of the law, lost in this life, fearful of what may come. Paul is saying, be like me, who though I have nothing of such earthly power, prestige, or possessions, have more than you can ever imagine of joy, peace, and love, and assurance of eternity with God. Remember, Paul in our text has been arguing uh, of, the, of the wrongful use of the law and the rightful use of the law. Not only the Galatians using this Old Testament law in this way, but modern people too. Setting up a, a standard as a kind of ladder up which they climb uh, to be at peace, right with God or one another, or their families, the Judaizers, you know, did all the law keeping to be right before God. We modern people do all the, right, you know, the law keeping to be right before one another and our perhaps our gods ourselves. We get the grade, we make the salary, we get the resume, we build it so we feel okay. I can load it to my Instagram, put it on my Facebook, and, and have something to, to prop myself up with. The law as ladder is a thing that leads to nowhere. It is a kind of a myth of Sisyphus. It is bondage to a stair climber. As hard as you climb, you are stuck in the same spot day after day. 
handcuffed to it, thinking, believing, or making progress, but no, this is in fact the human condition. It is one of bondage to a, a standard, a law, by which you think you can be right. But Paul is saying, be like me, be free. See the law not as a ladder, you might say, but more helpfully as a mirror. That's what Paul is teaching up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. Uh, a mirror that reflects um, our own sinful hearts. We look into the law week, week by week to, to see our sin and our need of Christ. The law works in that way. There's a law bringing focus to our lives where there was a perhaps ambiguity and, and um, a lack of clarity and amount of confusion. The second use of the law, the law works helpfully as a mirror But also, mirrors not only reflect an image, uh, mirrors can also be used to focus light. If you think about the way that a lighthouse works, you have the prisms and mirrors in the very top of the lighthouse that refract the light so that it comes out in a beam, so that the ships out at sea at night from miles offshore can can see where to go to avoid the rocks to come in safely to, to shore. So the law of God. And then the third use shows Christians a refracted beam of holiness to show us the way we ought to go. See, Paul is not in bondage to the mirror, or to, to the law. No, he's, he's free under it. There's not a ladder to climb. It actually focuses him to see his reflection, know the way he ought to go in life. But when we're liberated from the law as ladder, and we understand the law as mirror, The third thing Paul has been pressing is, we come to chapter 4, verse 12, and are wondering, what do you mean, Paul, uh, become like you? Paul, laser-focused, has made clear what he's saying just before this in chapter 4, in verse 6, saying, you have moved from the bondage of law-keeping to the freedom of sonship. And with a, a certain amount of clarity that you are a member of the family of God, the the fearlessness and insecurity of being a slave, of being perhaps able to put away or sold away, instead being a son who's adopted permanently and legally into the family of God, there's such a security. There is a courage. There's a rod of iron put down your back that we see Paul living in in his missionary journeys, unafraid to say to King Agrippa to his face, I wish you were as I was except these chains. See, Paul longs that they might be like him, uh, a life touched by the gospel of justification by faith alone, not living in insecurity and fear, but in fearlessness, not uh, in a mess of confusion, uh, but rather focused, having the clarity that comes with the gospel. This is Paul's entreaty. They, they may come, become like him. Now, as we see in t- chapter 4, verse 12a, all that follows in the passage are, are really reasons for why they ought to follow him, become like him. And we'll seek to work through, I think, the, the four reasons that, are, that are, are put there. The first is there in 12b. It says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Uh, the Greek construction is a funny thing. All the commentators mention it. Uh, more woodenly, it would be something like this. He doesn't use the being verb. He says something like, uh, become like me because I, you, I became like you. Here, Paul, I do think, is pointing to that missionary philosophy of ministry that 
He explains in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews he became a Jew, to the Greeks he became a Greek, so that he might save some. He became like them. That is, at some level, Paul contextualizes, never in such a way as to compromise the gospel, but always in such a way that he comes to his hearer's level rather than bringing his hearers up to his cultural level in some way. He did not do what the Pharisees did in laying heavy burdens that no one could bear. He did not do presumably as the the Judaizers did, the false teachers that came to Galatia, demanding the Greeks become essentially culturally Jewish and circumcision and food laws and holidays come up to our level. And not doing this, you know, would have been a a stark thing. They, They know about Paul. They know his Jewish resume. They were into that kind of thing. They could have been very impressed with his his long list of studying under Gamaliel and being circumcised on the eighth day and all this. But no, Paul says, I forgot all that. I became I, you, like you. Rejected all his external ceremonial law-keeping righteousness for the righteousness that was in Christ. And of course, this is so akin to Jesus' own ministry, what Paul explains in Philippians 2, that Christ did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a servant. Christ, you say, un, he, he condescended in the incarnation. Paul is following this same trajectory of coming unto them to be like them. And there's something persuasive in this, right? George Washington at Valley Forge stayed with his troops in the field, promising, as General Washington said, to share in hardship and partake of every inconvenience. Winston Churchill, after he falls from power during World War I and the Dardanelles disaster, ends up taking his own post up in the the trenches of France. It's uh, Churchill's tent is at one point, while he's not in it, hit with a mortar. He would have been killed if uh, one hadn't come to have a conversation with him then. See, there's meaning, there's persuasiveness in being in the trenches with you. That's what Paul is saying. I, you, I came to you. I was like you. I became like you. Now, his second line of reasoning builds on this as he calls them to remember what happened before when I first came. Look at verses 12b through 16. He says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of, of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, You would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, the the ailment of which he speaks would be mere conjecture to say what it is. Some of the commentators think that perhaps along the Galatian coast he had gotten some kind of mosquito-borne illness and had gone up. And, you know, the the Greeks, you know, sick people, you know, he's not that strong, he's not that tough. Uh, It could have been a a thing for them, a a hurdle for them, but it wasn't. They received him, and the thing that sticks out to you, or perhaps it sticks out to me, is they received him like an angel, like Christ Jesus. Now, we know a story about that that's rather striking. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas come to Lyconia, and famously, the Lyconians... uh, they think Paul is Hermes because he's a talkative one, and, and uh, Barnabas is Jupiter, and they start making sacrifices to them and worshiping them. And he goes, no, 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 no. He explains that's not the right way to receive them. But Paul here differently handles this. He commends them on their uh, coming and he, them honoring him. 
course, this is uh, consistent throughout Paul's ministry. He's always telling the people to, uh, 1 Timothy 5, give double honor for those elders that labor, labor in word and teaching. The same way in Romans 10, he quotes Isaiah's words of how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And I think we struggle with this culturally, because in our own day, uh, honor and shame are so confused. Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, uh, the one who is shamed by the puritanical society, uh, is of course the heroine and the one who is honored by creating her own life, uh, Hester Prynne. Uh, our, our culture does it all it can to replace shame with pride and honor with scorn. We parade our perversions down the street and celebrate them until we're blue in the face. Indeed, there's a great tradition in modern literature, maybe not a tradition, perhaps a, a trope, in television to lampoon the gospel minister. Whether it's your regular BBC Anglican priest or all the ministers in all the Jane Austen novels or one of the characters of the Canterbury Tales, it's a tradition that goes all the way back, even to 2 Kings 2. Remember when Elijah is going up to Bethuel, Bethel and 42 young people come out to, to make fun of his bald head, go up bald head, go up bald head, and famously two she-bears bring the judgment of God upon them. Now, the Bible is consistent. Jesus himself indicts his own generation for how they treated the prophets. Paul says to the Galatians, you would have given me your own eyeballs if I'd asked for them. Why this inconsistency from before? What happened? Explain it to me. So the first argument he's making is, remember, I, you, I, you, I came to you. The second argument is, there's no consistency in your behavior. And the third reasoning, argument for why they ought to be like him, he points to the false teachers. Look at verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you make, may make much of them. Paul's saying, look, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They lock you up under the law. They put you under bondage again, and they drag you back to Jerusalem, back into temple worship and ceremony. Uh, they, as it were, handcuff you to the treadmill and turn it on, and you get burned. There's no rest. Some will keep pace and swell with pride. Some will flounder along in insecurity. Some will fall, and the belt of the treadmill will burn them. They just want to bring you along to the temples as some kind of conversion trophy from the from the, the Netherlands of the known world, and leave you in the court of the Gentiles. Verse 17, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In a battle for souls, eternity in the balance, uh, Paul's arguments are shameless. He's unafraid to give them a guilt trip, reminding them of how he became one of them when he came to them. He's unafraid to shame them with their inconsistency of treatment of him. Thirdly, he's unafraid to accuse his opponents, the Judaizers, in their false teachings, impugning their motives. It's rather, rather shocking sometimes to read this in the Bible. All this how, why? Well, eternity is in the balance. His fourth line of reasoning contrasts the false teachers with the true teacher, the true pastor himself, Paul. Look at verse 18 and 19. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. 
And Paul here, he does. Again, he speaks uh, even as a mother in the anguish of childbirth. For what? For Christ to be formed in you. That is um, the end in ministry. That's what all your pastors and elders in this church hopes to see in your life. And it, it can be one thing to be a great evangelist and go out and uh, preach to big crowds and get lots of decisions and lots of baptisms, or perhaps your church membership swells, or perhaps there's some other statistical category, big Bible studies or on-campus ministry or youth meeting. But the ministry of seeing Christ formed in someone, not just a decision, not just some minor behavior modification, but full, mature, spiritual fruit in season and out of season, the marks of Christ, observable fruit spiritual fruit in a life, that takes time, cultivation, observation. And there's a cost to it. It is indeed anguishing, as any true minister can tell you. To work with someone uh, in a discipleship um, relationship or in a counseling relationship, to see three steps forward and to feel like you're making progress, but only to fall again into backsliding It is a weight on the heart of any father or mother for their children, or any pastor for his people, any true pastor. Paul is saying, he is in anguish that Christ in fullness come in you. To the apostatizing church, Paul calls them to what every true pastor teacher calls his people to, Christ in them, the hope of glory. I love Savannah, and of course one of the things Savannah is known for is its famous St. Patrick's Day parade and party. And of course, I don't think uh, that I'm Irish, uh, maybe Scotch-Irish, Ulster-Scots from some point in our history. But of course, uh, further, it's out of this own church, this church, the, the very, uh, the Hiberian Society has started, the very first St. Patrick's Day parade that starts on our own steps. But it is, we have a rather complicated relationship with the, the drunkenness and all the the things that happen downtown, uh, St. Patrick's Day. I hope that someday as a church we can figure out a way to, to minister then. But uh, there, there are some rather uh, helpful uh, gospel starter conversations that come out of St. Patrick's Day or could come from St. Patrick's Day because St. Patrick seems to be um, a great example of the gospel himself. He who was uh, captured and made a slave in Ireland who finds a way to freedom and then goes back to minister the gospel in Ireland to his enslavers. Patrick, perhaps more famous for his problematic illustration of the shamrock as a trinity, but also, more helpfully perhaps, famous for St. Patrick's breastplate. Perhaps you've seen it somewhere. A prayer, uh, I guess, for protection in some way. But I do think they reflect the heart of a true gospel minister for his people. A prayer for himself and a prayer for each of us. The prayer goes like this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, amen. Indeed, this is Paul's own expression, Colossians 1.28, that we might present you all mature in Christ. In a world awash in bondage, lostness, and insecurity, 
following Paul as he follows Christ, one who is free and focused and fearless. Why? Because Christ himself became one of us. Because what kind of person decides to follow and worship Christ one minute and then turn back the next? Because you know the false teachers are just using you for themselves. Because you know the end for which Christ lived and died, the very end for which you were made, Christ in you the hope of glory, to be who you were made to be, worshipers of the true God, eating at his table, having fellowship with him, even as we move towards now, praying together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've made a way to be right with you, to set us free of our bondage to the law. You have made us fearless as sons before you who know the the pleasure of their Father's face. And Father, I pray that you indeed bring Christ in fruition to us, that he would be in us, that uh, indeed, in the fullness, the fruit of Christ in His ministry as a church, that we would be sanctified more, more into His image. Father, I pray that You bless our church and its ministry. Amy Milling and the coordinating our children's church. And Dr. Foreman uh, directing our music. Father, we pray for our many sick and suffering, many needing Your hand. Judy Neese and Paul Johansson in the hospital this week. Restore them, I pray. Father, we pray for our nation and for our civil authorities that we might have men and women of integrity at every level of our government, that we might turn back from the ways of foolishness and pride and unto humility and contrition before you, even as a nation. Father, I pray for our local and foreign missions for the Chatham Transitional Ministry and Lori Irish and our tireless effort there, along with Matt Coleman and so many who partner with her. We pray for uh, RUF, especially RUF at SCAD as the semester has started in the last few days, for Martin Antoon and Sarah Schmidt. We pray for Nathaniel Miller at Georgia Southern, Ben Coppage at the University of Georgia, for Michael Phillips at Georgia Tech, John Gordy at Vagosta State, Tracy West at RUF International, Georgia Tech, and Marlon Harris at Mercer. Pray for our church planners and sister and daughter churches for Josh Hahn at Redeemer Newport Beach, for Sunderland Evangelical Presbyterian Church with Nathan Hilton. We pray for the missionaries we can't name because they serve in dangerous places. Father, knowing that you know their names, that you are working throughout all the world, bringing yourself glory, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would begin with us, that we would see even revival in our city, in our church, among our people. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.